Next Chapter Podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Record this. Everybody get naked now. Randy Newman is the naked man. Naked man, naked man, naked man by Randy Newman. Yep, from his 1974 album Good Old Boys. It's also number 394 out of 500 on the 500 with me, the King Cadugal. Josh Adam Myers here. As we go down, I can't even, I don't know if I can say it anymore. As we go down the old Rolling Stone magazine list of the 500 greatest albums, written by old white men. But thank you guys, Fleece Army, what's up man? I hope the, the coup in the White House isn't bringing you down. I am obsessed with it right now. I don't know if it's healthy or not, but you know, some hair's falling out. My dog took up smoking. Like a dog is uh, is about a pack a day right now. I want to thank everybody that that watched the goddamn comedy jam on my 41st birthday, man. What an incredible show, guys! Uh, I can't stress this enough. If you have yet to watch the goddamn comedy jam live, then this is your chance to do it. We're doing it at this incredible place called the In Crowd, and man, you are involved. My buddy Steve. From Scotland was watching. He stayed up until 5 in the morning so he could tune in. He had a great time. Crazy Evan, who runs our Facebook. Everybody, guys, it's so much fun. Be there. We're going to announce the next lineup for December very, very soon. And I'll have a great lineup for you. And I just want you guys to be there. I really do. Also, if you could do something for my birthday, and I mean this, Fleece Army, this is what I want for my birthday. I want everybody, if you listen to this, to go on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star rating and leave a review. Guys, that's what I want for my birthday. Not money, not donations to charity, which you you should do that too, but just give us that five-star rating and leave a review. Then take a screenshot and send it to me on Instagram, and I will do something. I haven't decided what it is, but it's going to be dope. Also, guys, submit your podcast theme for the 500, where we want you to write our theme song. 
And the grand prize winner gets a one-year subscription to the 500 Club, which is our Patreon, where you get new merch, you get the new podcast that I'm starting. I'm going to be doing it a couple days a week with Today in Music. It's going to be great. We used to do it on the podcast. I'm going to be doing it. We got some really cool shows coming up, and you get to support the 500, and you get to vote on the theme song. So send your submissions to 500podcasts at gmail.com. Some of the ones that we're getting in are incredible. And join the Patreon. All right, so Randy Newman is... A very interesting character to me because I only looked at this guy as someone that wrote original music for Disney movies. So you can imagine how surprised I was when I heard Rednecks, which we're going to talk about. Released on September 10th, 1974 on Reprise Records and produced by Lenny Waronker and Russ Teitelman, this is the fourth album by American singer-songwriter Randy Newman. Randy was born in Los Angeles in 1943, but his family moved to New Orleans shortly thereafter before he returned when he was 11. As the nephew of three prominent Hollywood film composers, he became a musician at a young age and a songwriter by 17 after being obsessively influenced by Ray Charles. After dropping out of UCLA one semester before earning a BA in music, he decided to go pro. And by 1962, while he was composing background scores for TV shows, he put out a single that flopped. He decided to concentrate on writing for other vocalists, including pop songs from movies. By the mid-60s, after some successful hits for other artists, mostly in the UK, childhood friend and future co-producer of this record, Lenny Waronker, hired Randy as well as singer-songwriter Leon Russell and Van Dyke Parks, great name, to play on and arrange recording sessions for bands he was producing as a junior A&R man for Warner Brothers Records. As Waronker moved up the chain of A&R at Warner Brothers Records, he brought his crew with him where he eventually signed Randy to Warner's artist-centric reprise label. Randy's songs were often structured like traditional American standards, but his often caustically humorous lyrics often skewed into a darker psyche. Similar to some of his friends and fellow musicians, Newman's records at the time avoided any real connection to the rock and roll of their contemporaries. They preferred being backed by orchestral musicians. After one critical but not commercially successful album, Randy's follow-ups began to build a following as well as again providing hits for other artists. Some songs from those first few albums that later blew up were Mama Told Me Not To Come, I Think It's Gonna Rain Today, and You Can Leave Your Hat On. By the time he was ready to record this album, he was a critical darling and an established cult artist. Fans really took to Newman's literature, sly, sardonic, and often polarizing character studies and themes. And musically, his songs started drifting into a rootsier, country-tinged Americana. Now, Randy had touched upon America's complicated history with race relations before. Sail Away was a tantalizing recruitment to slaves to come to the mythical and fantastic place called America. That came out in 1972. But good old boys is gonna go even further. Crazy shit is that Sail Away was later covered by whose hero? Randy's hero, Ray Charles. Now, originally, Randy was going to make this concept album a musical about a bigoted everyman steelworker from the Deep South named Johnny Cutler, and he recorded demos under the title Johnny Cutler's Birthday in early 73. However, he eventually broadened the scope to include other disenfranchised characters. The subject matter included racism, poverty, southern pride, northern hypocrisy, mental illness, and drinking, as well as historical and political themes and events. It was a critical and popular success going to number 36 on the Billboard chart and staying there for 21 weeks. 
After that commercial breakthrough, Randy followed up a few years later with some popular songs like Short People and 1983's I Love L.A. He then turned primarily back to soundtrack scoring where he became wildly popular. I mean, that's where we know him from. To date, he's released 11 albums, written scores and songs for 29 movies, including nine Disney Pixar movies, some of them being Toy Story and Monsters, Inc. You got a friend in me. He's won two Academy Awards, seven Grammy Awards, three Primetime Emmys, a Partridge, a Pear Tree. He got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013 and the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2002. And he is a star on Hollywood Boulevard. Now, my guest today is a dude that I never would have thought was a huge, huge Randy Newman fan. My guest is Jordan Temple. Jordan's an incredible comic. We both did Bill Burr Presents in January. He's a writer for Atlanta and a writer for the Emmy Award-winning series, The Marvelous Miss Maisel. He is hilarious, and I was told by multiple, multiple people to book this dude. And we got to talk about Randy Newman a little bit when we both recorded the Bill Burr Presents. Great, great conversation, and I couldn't have thought of a better guest than Jordan Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on all platforms. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group run by Crazy Evan. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, hey, Randy, do you want to introduce it? Here we go with number 394 out of 500 with good old boys by me, Randy Dubin. So it still makes me laugh, Jordan, because it was maybe like, fuck, like a year ago, I was talking to Mike Lawrence, the great, the late great. I want to say late because at any moment his diet will kill him. But... (laughs) But God's honest truth. He goes, he looks at the list and he goes, dude, I see you got some Randy Newman albums coming up on here. You need to go for Jordan Temple. And I was like, what? I was like, he's like, dude, he fucking loves Randy Newman. Loves. So you didn't pitch me on this. Mike Lawrence did. And then we talked when we did the Bill Burr Presents and I mentioned it to you or, or maybe a little before or after that, whatever. And And then you verified that. So tell me... How a a black dude from Queens becomes a diehard Randy Newman fan. Take me on that journey. My journey with Randy Newman. Where did I start? I want to say, was it 08, 09? Was that record he had out? His last, last record, Harps and Angels. I, you know, I was in a period of, of my life where like I was in my early 20s. I was in community college, just like exploring, t- like putting every practical weird thing seemingly things that don't connect every genre of music like i had maybe five songs each just to test myself and just to expand my mind and so i just looked up everything that was a release at that time whether it was like i don't know fucking good charlotte or like papa roach uh nas album yeah everything with the whole cornucopia of music i get it yeah, I wanted to just expand my mind of things of, you know, I always like had like weird different tastes, whatever. But like I saw that Randy Newman had like a new album out, Harps and Angels, and I played it. I put it on my, my iPod shuffle. Shout out 
Oh, R.I.P. Actually, R.I.P. Uh, I myself, <laughs> the chef. Yeah, uh, oh, it was so good. You could just you know drag and dry, drop. I I paid for it. No, I didn't. I mean, you can't you can't get me now, Napster. <laughs> Limewire love. Some of that Limewire love. Limewire, shout out. No, but I I put that album on my phone, and I was captivated by Korean parents. I just listened to it, and it was just so wrong. He has this song. It's just like, uh, <laughs> it starts out very, very innocent, and he's just like painting an image of uh, American kids not doing well in school, and then it turns, and there's like, he's like, um, he's like, kids today got problems that your parents never had. Neighborhood is dangerous. Public schools are bad. <laughs> He's like, Korean parents for sale. And that's when I fell in love. I was like, I'm hooked. This man gets it. Yeah. It's satire. It's like, it's playful. It just, I saw a review of uh, Good Old Boys, the album we're going to get into. Description is basically like, it borders on some of his songs borders on like infantile and magical it's like that's the pocket he lives in and that's what i like to explore because i know like i can be very silly childish like dark I, and the energy that he just enlivens in me is just something that i need you know whether that be on his second album i forget the one with the kiss makeup uh born born rich no born you know more about him than i do i'm gonna tell you that right now i'll tell you about good old boys but but yeah no he has a song called pants i made a fucking he's just he's just like making like a hardcore rock ballad but he's basically like yelling about taking off his pants you know and it's like shit like that it just tickles the fucking mind it's just too weird he's too weird to be pop but he's also like and, and, and easily to ignore, like very like nebbish and like weird and something that he cops to and is part of his charm. And I'm sure a lot of people have wanted him to go away or wondered why in the hell they ever heard short people. But then he made Toy Story and it's just like, you, you just can't ignore him. Like I- Com Completely, complete. I mean, I, I know it's funny that I ignored him. I've ignored him for years. Yeah. And now I know that Randy <laughs> Newman is God. It goes, it goes Morrissey, Brian Ferry, Randy Newman, Miles Davis. Randy is above Miles. Um, so what? So you hear the, that album that you download, and then do you just start digging everything? You just want to like, all I want to do is listen to Randy, and you start going through all the rest of the records? A bit. I feel like I was chewing on that one for a little bit, but then, you know, I went back every now and then up until like, maybe 2015, 16, and I was just listening to, you know, I was listening to the, the, the catalog, or this like, you know, the songs he did for The Natural. I, li I like his composition too, which is really nice. Um, you know, he comes from a family of like composers, his uncles were, you know, that combined with him going to visit family in Louisiana, like every summer, really paved the road for, the, the very outsider kind of perspective he had, but with insight for people in the South, like there's empathy there in ways that a lot of people, you know, who don't live in the South, they just oversimplify the people. And he didn't have that, even though 
you would think that the characters he was describing or the, you know, especially in Rednecks is basically him, you know? He's like, uh, last night I saw Lester Maddox on a TV show, some smart ass New York Jew. Like a lot of people would describe him as that, but you know, California Jew, but you know, like, but he under, he, he holds the mirror. Like he still know he knows who he is while making fun of people. Like some people will mock people and not be able to see their own hypocrisy, you know? But I think that he, he can. And that's that's what makes him that's what sets him apart. And it also helps that he sometimes feels like intentionally has a shitty voice. <laughs> because it's like it's not about hitting the notes, it's about the feeling that it embodies. If a better voice sang short people, it would be much harder to get upset. But it's supposed to make you uncomfortable because it is not a typical like prejudice that people have. And that's what he's doing. He's making he's making a mockery of prejudice itself by saying, yeah, you're getting upset if you're short, but here's a, you know, something that, you know, a short black person, it, the common thing is that they're black, not that they're short. And that's the ridiculousness of the prejudice because, you know, it's, it's ridiculous to, you know, kind of categorize some, a person just based on one thing, whatever it is. And uh, I actually played that for a short girl. What was she, that, short people? Yeah, she was, she was kind of upset. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, this, oh no, let's turn this off. Let's put something else on. Let's put some, yeah, let's put some Casey and JoJo on. Fun, yeah. No, I, well, so, all right, so tell me about this record. What's your experience with this? And what, what are your feelings the first time you hear this? Because cause you got this, this, like you said, this old white New York Jew, well, really raised in New Orleans, um, well, L.A. Jew, really. Um, but but he's this is an album that, I mean, the, the subject matter, ta- he's talking about racism, he's talking about poverty, Southern pride, Northern hypocrisy, mental illness, drinking, as well as, like, historical and, and political themes. So, I mean, so, so you've dug the other shit. Now you hear this one for the first time. And what's your first reaction? I think my first reaction was uh, relief. I think when I heard Rednecks, it was such a relief having grown up in New York. There's so many white liberals that like to pat themselves on the back and make it seem as if, you know, that uh, they have some moral high ground over Southern whites. And it's like, you are, you are different. Uh, and the same, you know, just regionally, you are in a different place, but racism takes on a different place when people are not like sanctioned to segregate the schools. Like they were segregating schools in the South because it was the law at one point, but in the North, they were like, we're not going to make it a law because, you know, we're better than that. We're not the South. We don't need laws to segregate the school. And so people were just waiting on white liberals to take the mantle. And it never really happened. It stayed segregated and it still is segregated. And that is something as part of the hypocrisy that Rednecks points out. You know, he's, you know, I, and I, I think that his, his upbringing made it perfect for that because he got to learn and love people from the South. And then he got to go back to California where he probably 
there was some embedded in the culture, some idea or kinship with Californians and, and outsiders uh, of being able to shit on the South. Yeah. Hey, everyone. This is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week, I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. You know, I, I have listened to. I think this we probably over done over a hundred records on on uh, on this podcast so far, and uh, I was that guy, like you said, that just breezed over Randy Newman. I ah, I never liked this guy. He's a joke. You know what I mean? The guy, it's a fucking Toy Story guy. And when I saw this coming up, yeah, I was excited to be able to sit down and talk to you about it, especially knowing like your background and Randy's background. I was like, this is going to be interesting. And then. The second you put this on, and I and I bet the listeners fucking will 100% agree with me, I, I don't think we've had a record that has been so relevant to what is going on in the world and said in such a truthful yet funny way. I, this is like perfect satire. This is almost as good a satire as as anything that any comedy that has come out this is this is like dr strange love in 13 songs or 12 songs it's it just completely took me by surprise and especially because you've mentioned it the first song so let's let's dive into the record because uh, i mean the only way we can start this is with the song we've been talking about rednecks uh peter play the chorus Uh, what what was that, Randy? What <laughs> did you say? Hmm? What was that, Randy? Did you just yeah. say, oh you did just say the N word? Uh, and you're gonna you say it eight did. more times. <laughs> eight more. I I think the funniest thing about this is uh, this is the same vibe as you got a friend in me from Toy Story. Uh, cause I could literally see like Andy playing with Woody and Buzz Lightyear and it's just, we're rednecks, we're rednecks, keeping the hmm high down. What, what was that? Jesus. That changed the, that'll change your fucking, uh, your recess at school. So I said, so what is like, what, what is, you hear this song for the first time. What do you think? Um, a part of me just kind of like just getting around the word, you know? Because it's been, you know, reclaimed, it means something different. But I haven't heard it in the context, even though it sounds, you know, viscerally wrong. If if I were to to be more angry at the word and less at the idea, like I can understand how that would be 
upsetting, but um, he he says it with such um, intention and conviction to who he's presenting the idea to. Like he's making the case because he's he's also playing as a character, which I don't think is it's not done in today the way people, you know, it's not hipster racism today where people use characters to be racist and shit. Like he's, this character is actually writing the song. So he says, you know, I went to the park and reflecting on this, this white politician who in the South, who was on Dick Cavett show and he was being mocked and he, you know, he's a Southerner and he basically wrote the song. He said, I went to the park and took the pic some paper along and that's why I made this song and so he's presenting this idea of you know we're rednecks like in a very like visceral like this is what you think of us kind of thing like this is the only idea to associate with us but here's the hypocrisy and then when it turns you see how like useful that word was because it's like to get your attention and also to make you uncomfortable. It's not just should he or should he not say that. I've heard him say in an interview, he obviously wouldn't perform that song today. It gives different meaning, but people say this, use that word or think that word or treat black people in that way without any levels of understanding that he's bringing and sensitivity that he's bringing to the song. So it's not to say, you know, a pass. In some ways, I do think it's wrong. But I can also see how well he used it, how well executed just the song and what it means, you know. So so do you think that there's ever and like and I guess in this instance, there's ever an okay time for a white person to use the N-word? Absolutely not. Okay. Uh <laughs> I don't I don't but I'm just saying like people there's definitely no time, but people don't use it in the way he is, like obviously. Sure. It you know he has I think he might even have some regrets about the song using yeah he might but I think uh, I think if people could uh, understand that people say nigga to people not in character <laughs> like and with no understanding or you know really any kind of scruples then you know they would be obviously less upset well i don't it's, you see like I, I see like a lot of like tiktok videos and instagram videos of these like white kids that like hang out with black kids or or even like mexicans that are that are using that word the same way black people use it to like talk to like they're talking to a friend they're just it's like in the natural flow of the conversation which you'd hear amongst like some of my black friends or or people you know do you see what i'm saying it's like it's like there's it's almost gotten to a point now where I, I, I see people using it and it's just like I, I to me I'm like wow it's like that's a little that's a little like liberal for for my taste I mean like how does that make you feel when you see that shit you're just totally like meh no I mean I definitely hate it I also hate when people treat me like like the word the treatment the treatment still is there without the word like this Mexican guy tried to start a fight with me in the fucking Rite Aid yesterday. And I looked over in the, in the, like, in the aisle, I walk in the Rite Aid, and there's, like, a black, it's, like, practically the, the like, Shea Moisture, it's, like, 
black hair products aisle and I needed some shit or I was thinking about some shit anywhere. There was soap. It was what the fuck I needed. I was in the goddamn Rite Aid. I just look over, glance over and there's like a Mexican man with two Mexican women. And he just goes, you work here? I'm like, nah. He's like, you look like it. And I was like, bruh, like he was ready to scrap with me. He was like trying to, he was getting machismo and shit. And it's like, it's not just the white and black people. It's like anti-blackness is everywhere. You know what I mean? So it's not just making this on Randy. Like Mexicans say it and they hate black people. And it's and it's deplorable. And every other group, they want to try that POC shit. That shit does not fly. It doesn't mean jack shit because they're anti-blackness in you know every community in every non-black community, but they make it just racism between white people and black people. So non-black people have something to learn from this too. It's not just white, it's, it's not just white and black, it's anti-blackness and how the South has been able to, ha, has been made the scapegoat for racism period. Because, you know, all those other non-black people can sweep it under the rug and try to act like it's just in the South. The South gets all of the hate and hardly anybody who is a critic of it is actually from there. Yeah, if you go to if you go to Huntington Beach right now, I bet you're getting the same kind of racism that you're going to get in in fucking Alabama. Yeah, yeah. Right in Los Feliz, Silver Lake. I was in Los Feliz. It's just like Mexicans hate black people. You know, it's every group does. But, you know, you talk to them about it. They're like, oh, no, I'm not racist or I have. Uh, black friends or some goofy shit, you know, I'm a fucking Kobe fan, some dumb shit, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like, or, you know, I don't know. It's just, I, get, I know exactly what you're saying. So, so Randy explained years, uh, 30 years later, he goes, it always bothered me when that word went by, but I needed the word in that song. There was no other way to do it. And I do the song everywhere and people get it. Uh, and like I said, dude, taking away from just that word. But this song is biting satire on the systemic racism of the Deep South. As well, like you said, as the smug northern states unspoken racial segregation. And if everybody's wondering uh, who uh, Lester Maddox is... He was a uh, segregationist restaurant owner who wouldn't serve black customers even after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and he used that notoriety to get elected the populist Democratic Center from Georgia from 67 to 71. And in the vein he was a populist, there were some reflections of Trump, um, him kind of laying the groundwork in terms of not just being a populist, but voting, but relying on, you know, certain like imagery and, you know, resting his kind of hatred, laying it kind of bare for everyone to be like, oh, okay, yeah, I can like openly hate. Yeah, but yeah, he was a restaurant tour. Little known fact, I don't know if this is going to tickle you, but the backup singing on this song, as well as several others, are by the Eagles. Don Henley, Glenn Fry, and Bernie Ledden. So 
You don't know who those are. That's like, those are like white superheroes right there, dude. That's fucking. Randy Newman is the only white man I recognize. All right. I'm, I'm here too, Jordan. All right, moving on. Uh, Birmingham. Birmingham tells the story of Johnny, his wife Marie, and their dog Dan, and their deep connection to Birmingham, Alabama, a city Martin Luther King Jr. might have described as sweltering with the heat of oppression. Uh, Peter, play a little taste. Birmingham. What I enjoy about this song, besides it just being this 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 really beautiful song about Birmingham, it's funny because Johnny is like aloof to the fact that Birmingham was the epicenter of the American civil rights movement of the 50s and the 60s. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. It's it's so idyllic. He's like walking you through and it's so grand and you would never think that um, all this terrible shit is going on. You know, it's it's so I think the turning point in the song where it it goes from idyllic and picturesque and kind of almost mundane. Right. And his love for it and becomes a little dark is when he is addressing he's like, uh, you know, addressing his uh, dog. And he says, get him, Dan. That's when it was like because, you know, dogs were used in, in weaponized ways, you know. Dogs were used to hunt slaves, black people, uh, and during the civil rights movement, bite them. And then today, uh, gentrify neighborhoods. You know, the dog park is a central place in a white or gentrifying neighborhood where white people control the territory. So for him to say, get them, Dan, it's just white people using dogs again, like, you don't know who's on the opposite side of the get em, Dan, you know, and I but think. You, but you have an idea because of where it is, the time that this came out, you know, especially after the first song. It's like, oh, you. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's so good so, because he's yeah. painted this story. He's already set the tone. You you already know the direction he's going. And yet he's presenting this hor- horrible, horrific event of somebody being attacked by a dog most likely a black dude and it's like underneath this beautiful fucking melody of like of like lolly this sounds like music you like fish to and you're like playing catch with your son do it doesn't sound like something that's attacking like your black neighbor all right marie now this one this one got me in the feels uh i, I teared up a little bit peter play a little bit when you're in trouble a time First time I saw you, I always love you, Marie. Yeah, it's it's just Ooh. everything about it. Just the the cadence that he's singing, the pauses, and then the strings uh, are just incredible. 
Um, the arrangement is next level. Yeah, yeah. You can see that he came from uh, a very musical family and the influences that he has, because this is just fantastic. So this is basically the last song Johnny Cutler explained how his wife's name was Mary, uh, but is also known as Marie. And it's funny because Newman seems to be making the statement that Southern masculinity hinges on not sharing one's feelings. And... That may be why Cutler has to get blacked out drunk to tell Marie how in love with her he really is. So, I mean, that's 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 it's a pretty fucking true thing. Uh, thoughts on this song? Because I saw you going apeshit, fucking. You're like, woo, fuck yeah, <laughs> you love it. Yeah, those chords, those chords are. I mean, literally, pull your pull your heartstrings. No pun intended, but. Yeah, it was um yeah, he is drunk and it is like also him describing his life, you kind of hear a little bit, you know, when he says there's pride in when he says I make a living with my hands, but you know that the difficulty of that job at a factory drives him to drink, which makes it much harder for him, you know, to probably emote because you you do a job where it's it's painful you you day in and day out maybe you can't spend as much time with your wife so then you drink and then you have all of these emotions piled up on top of drinking and then that's when you can make a song as beautiful as Marie sadly but what have you done while love drunk have you done <laughs> Anything crazy? I definitely told women I love them when I was drunk. I mean, I told them I loved them before I was drunk. And then I told them, <laughs> but I like professed, like I like broke down, like, you're the only one uh, uh, when I die. And there's not, and, and it's just me in that ground. I want you next to me in that ground. And uh, like all kinds of shit. Um, We've all done that, dude. I've, I mean, I've never said it like so fucking eloquently. I'm usually like, girl, I fucking love, I love you. I'm a crier, dude. When I used to drink, I'm a fucking crier, dude. I used to, I could be, we could, we could be, we could be at a fucking tailgate of a, of like a, of a football game. And I'm just like, <laughs> just start crying. One time I got drunk, one time I got real drunk and I was like not talking. And the girl was like, are you all right? Do you, like, you're not talking. And I was just looking at her. I was like, I just want to look at you. That's actually pretty, sm that's pretty slick, dude. That's, that's not too bad. That's not too bad. And what, what was her reaction? Was she like, okay. Or is she like, all right, well, let me show you the goods. And then started like showing you a little leg or something. Yeah, she got me some water and then she let me keep looking at her. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, oh, and I was like, she's like, you're not looking too good. Do you fall in love quickly? Kind of, yeah. I feel like I, I fall in love once a week. Really? Yeah. I miss that feeling, man. I miss, like, you know, when you hear songs like Marie. Not with people, per se. Just with what you're saying. You just fall in a love any, with it. It could anything. be a song. It could be a movie. Yeah. A feeling. Mm -hmm. I, I used to fall in love a lot when I was younger. I remember, like, I would have, like, I was talking about when I drank or even, you know, my 20s. Not even, maybe early 30s too, a little bit, but it was like I used to take breakups hard. And now it's just, 
Now it's like, all right. Dude, there was, I was da- there was a girl I was dating that was a multi multi millionaire songwriter uh, in December, and we dated for a few months. And that, and then it, yeah, it was I was I was dating Carly Simon. Wait, for real? You dropped that name? No, oh. no, God, no, no, that's not. <laughs> no, I was about to say Carly, Carly. <laughs> no, I. Uh, it was just this. It was this girl, and she was great. And then it just didn't work out. And I, I had two days of feeling down on myself, and then I was just like, wow, I feel back to normal. I just think that's. I think you you understand love and you understand the emotions the older you get. Now, keep in mind, I was a 39-year-old man. Well, 40 at that point. So I'd been through it, you know? Like like you said, like I used to fall in love hard. A lot. Now it's like it, now it's like I could walk into it and be like, all right, let me get to know this chick. Let me find out if it's cool, and then I'll put the emotions into it. And the fucked up part was I, I was like four dates, then I put the emotions in. And then she was like, I don't know if I want to have a boyfriend right now because I'm still kind of not over my ex. And I was like, God. Damn. Damn it. You, I was like, I already saw us vacationing in Ibiza. Like, I literally saw us just me driving your Tesla. Damn. Damn it. Yeah. Yeah, dude. We'll get there, dude. I'll fall in love. All right. So uh, the next one, Mr. President, have pity on the working man. So this was written a few years earlier as a plea to the soon-to-be disgraced President Richard Nixon that also slyly lists some of his transgressions and limitations. But as you said on the text when I booked you on this, this hits harder today. Uh, Peter, play a little bit. Maybe your cheek. Maybe you're lying. Maybe you have lost your mind. Maybe only think about yourself. Too late to run. Too late to cry now. Maybe you've cheated. Maybe you've lied. Maybe you have lost your mind. Maybe you're only thinking about yourself. Too late to run, too late to cry now. I mean, this is this is exactly what we are dealing with right fucking now. All current. I mean, it literally could have been like, you lost the election. Stop teasing my erection. See that exit sign. That is your direction. Uh, Mr. President, please leave the White House. I know it may sound funny, but people everywhere are running out of money. We just can't make it by ourselves. It's like everyone getting stimulus checks now. Everyone saying, you know, uh, maybe you're, you know, thinking about yourself, saying how, you know, selfish this last presidency was. It's like, it's very prescient, you know? He's like, I think some of the best music or just art in general is so, feels like out of place in time. It's kind of ahead of its time a little bit and people don't understand it until there's like a series of events, you know, or like it's very cyclical that they're, and, and timeless that the, of the pocket that this music exists in, because you could say this about almost every presidency. This is about Nixon, but you know, it's also, it could be said the same thing about Bush, about Obama, especially Trump. So, you know, it's uh, people always out of money, people always seemingly uh, scratching and clawing under capitalism and the weight of it. And, you know, it's uh, having pity on the working man is also, 
uh, an interesting just, uh, you know, perspective or something I think Randy has embedded in this Southerners kind of story and insiders thing because he's not saying particularly any other color man except the white man. When he says man, because man is typically associated with white man, is something that a lot of white people feel and have poor whites have felt um, and often feel forgotten. And I think um, that is who, while this guy is pleading with the president, those same people he's addressing or representing here actually voted for Trump and are voting against their interests. And I think that's another interesting side of that. And it just, it just, you know, there's so many layers and that I, and, and, and contradictions and complexities, which are, you know, important to a character, but also the character arc seemingly of the, the album and the, the obstacles that kind of push it and, you know, take us out on the other side and create a real picture of somebody who cares deeply about the South and wants to bring you in and be like a warm blanket for the shit, you know, and not just, you know. I mean, exactly what you just said is, is just, is so spot on, man. You know, we, we act like, or remember that statement that they said during, uh, the age of enlightenment, that history is progressive and that we learn. We, we will never repeat the mistakes that we made in the past because human beings are grow and we learn. And it's like, nah, dude, we're doing the same exact shit. So that's why this song could be relevant to Nixon and it can be relevant to every president that's come, be, come before or after. It's it's like this is this is literally has the finger on the pulse of the relationship between one of the sides of of the people that are being represented by the president. Because like you said that this this could have been for Obama if if you're a Republican and and vice versa um, for for Bush. So it's the second I read this and with everything that's going on in the world right now with with Trump not you know, giving up the reins, maybe even possibly starting a coup. Um, I wanted to ask you, how do you think all that's going on right now will change our work in comedy and basically art in general? Not sure. I I know Trump hasn't been good for late night, but I never liked late night. So I was fine with that. As it pertains to art and or whatever, comedy stands to be kind of seen. But as time goes along, I think stand-up needs to be thought of in a much more creative way. You know, before this, or, you know, some years ago, I did, like, independent plays and stuff, and I feel like the comedy special is going to be a mix of that, like, one-man showy play aspects, and and really is something that you can connect to that isn't just uh, needing either of an audience or thinks of the form in a different light uh, entirely. I just feel like comedy obviously will never be the same, not for like 15 years at least, and touring, which I, I mean, I never did to begin with, um, but I, you know, I still like doing stand-up, obviously, and miss it. Um, like, when it'll just never be the same. Uh, I don't know. I think we just are kind of being more creative with the ways that we present our, our ideas as a whole. And the comedy special 
needs to be like rethought, not just like standing up and telling jokes, but, and not also just even doing Zoom, but really connecting with the, like the best way you see yourself doing something that isn't just a standard, like mic in a stage, whether that be a one man show kind of play deal, like I'm thinking about doing, or if you wanted to do a play or put on, put that on or go into some kind of music, you know, foray, it's just requires just thinking about it in a different way. Uh, I don't know if that I feel, didn't feel like a great answer, but. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was, it was a fantastic answer because I completely see what you're saying. Um, unfortunately, we're about to have a civil war and uh, there won't be stand up comedy anymore because uh, we're going to be joining tribes and uh, fighting for food and living in, uh, you know, and fighting in Thunderdomes. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. Yeah! 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 The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. You got to keep this in mind, dude. Uh, Mad Max took place in 2025. Which means Road Warrior was 2030, which means like, you know, Fury Road was like 2032. You know. Yeah. I could see it happen, could be dude. Moving towards that. How, how, how long do you think you could survive in the apocalypse? Mm. No more government. Government's fallen. <sighs> I don't know. Um... Weeks, months, years, days. I don't know. I'm kind of not afraid to die. So if I die quick, I'd be fine. Maybe a day. <laughs> maybe a couple of years i don't know i don't it's uh you ready to you ready to kill your brother for antibiotics no lop off an arm for 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 squirrel meat no my brother needs those needs them more than i do he's yeah he's a he's got thyroid stuff and he's very he's very skinny <laughs> i would not have to lop off his arm he's he's very easy to beat that's my older brother. My younger brother, he's he's kind of big. I have to put him down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like, we got meat on them bones. All right. No, weird segue, but uh, guilty. Oh, yes. You're guilty. Mm-hmm. So this is another reflective drinking song, but this time the character lives in self-pitying victimhood. Uh, this is a perfect song. Also, uh, peep the arrangement in the background. Peter. You know... You know how it is with me, baby. You know, you know I just can't stand myself. 
takes a whole lot of medicine for me to pretend that I'm somebody else. Woo! Uh, so the only what I wrote after after listening to this, this song is honest as fuck. Uh, he knows he shouldn't be drinking, but he's so low that this is all he has. And he is probably pissing off the girl he hangs with because he even apologized for asking to come over, which is, this is all the shit that, this is my like late 20s. This is when I was talking about me being a crier. That's what the fuck was up right there. That was me. Um, thoughts on this song? It's a, it's a troublesome song. It, it speaks to a lot of, uh, you know, self-hatred I think men have that kind of causes them to drink and then depresses them further and it's kind of like a weird it's kind of like the when he's describes got some whiskey from the barman got some cocaine from a friend it it kind of is a you know a snowball effect no pun intended of him getting it's like the end of the episode of Seinfeld when Kramer like somehow gets like a like a pimp coat and, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. like a, a cane <laughs> and then uh, there's a prostitute in his car and he looks like he's about to like go upside ahead and then the cops come and there's no way for him to say he's not a pimp. It's like, it's all of those things leading to disaster. You know? Yeah, he's like, he's like, bitch, be cool. Be cool, girl. Be cool. Be cool. Bitch, be cool. Yeah. That's, yeah, that that kind of image reminded me of that. But it's also like, um, yeah, the self the self pity is real. That you know, drinking always exacerbates, and you feel remorseful. You feel even worse, not for how you know you could potentially treat this woman, but ultimately for having to drag yourself to a woman while you're feeling bad and you're drunk or you're fucked up. It's like you are seeing how it's eating. Something can just eat at you. It's like. How come I never do what I'm supposed to do? How come nothing that I try to do ever turns out right? You know, and I'm I'm guilty, baby. I'm guilty. I'll be guilty all the rest of my life. And it's uh it's not like the kind of the level of apology you're just like, this is gonna excuse everything, but you're just like, I am guilty. I don't know what else to tell you. Like I know what I am, and I feel terrible about myself and uh <laughs> you know he's that last part that part you played is the realest you know oh it's the best I just can't stand myself it takes a whole lot of medicine for me to pretend that i'm somebody else i thought about so much of stand-up when i thought that not just the drinking being the medicine but the attention seeking all of the sets you do that you need to fill the void is like the courage you kind of seemingly need to do it it's like all the energy. He's like, it takes a lot, whole lot of medicine for me to pretend that I'm somebody else. It's like that persona you build up to get on stage to, to you know, corral that stage presence takes so much and it's pretending. You get off stage and you're just like, man, I'm just, you know, I'm telling an idea of the truth. Then you get off stage and you feel like you were living a lie just on there sometimes. Uh, or at least sometimes it feels like that because you think that you're a strong person, but you know a part of you, if, you, if you've done stand up a lot, especially, that you are beholden to it, a part of you. 
especially during um, the coronavirus, you're like, fuck, damn, I need that dopamine hit of fucking attention. And you just like, no, I'm a strong person, man. I'm like, I don't need stand up. I'm a, and then you get all, <laughs> you don't have it for two weeks. You're like, Zoom, let's do it. <laughs> Zoom comedy. <laughs> tap, 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 tap. Like you're like, yeah. you know, um, and yeah, you, it takes a whole lot of medicine for you to pretend that you're somebody else to build, build up the courage and then to come down off the high and then having to replace it with shit to get the same fucking chemicals in your fucking brain, you know? Yeah, man. That's there's so many comedians that that's why they they do coke after they're set and that's why they do drugs. It's because they're they're trying to mask who they really are and then just keep that high going. That was perfectly said, dude. Uh, perfect. All right. Louisiana 1927. All right. So these next three songs veer away from Johnny Cutler's story, but still capture the spirit of the Deep South while digging into its history. So while doing some research for this album, Randy read a book about the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927, which killed at least 200 people, left 700,000 without homes, and destroyed the previously thriving cotton industry for years. Besides the tragedy itself, this song captures the feeling shared by those affected that the Northerners, including President Calvin Coolidge, were generally apathetic to their plight. I feel like that's perfectly summed up in this part here. Peter? President Coolidge come down to the railroad train the little fat man with a notepad in his head President Salem, fat man, he made a shame What the river has done I mean, that's that's just, that's fantastic. How, how does this how does this song make you feel? I like, well, outside of well, just thinking about uh, how it reflects a little bit to rednecks. It's a different. It's showing them in a much more humble and kind of humiliated humiliated state. Um, you know, he said the N word there. He's saying crackers here and you're more empathetic towards these poor Louisianians um, that he's describing. The little fat man also is Herbert Hoover, um, who led Coolidge's response. But yeah, it makes me feel like uh, it's just part, kind of in the same vein we were describing, like how sickly like the other song was Mr. President. It's the same here with the flood, right? Because the levees constantly break in Louisiana. We saw it not too long ago with Hurricane Katrina. I went down to uh, the lower ninth ward before I was like leading a um, this this kids group, teenage group when I was in, like in my early twenties, and they were a volunteer group. And the levees were still very very weak. Uh, and yeah, it just is a reminder of that. Uh, kind of pain of that poor people in Louisiana have white, black, just everyone. And just that this is written from the perspective of a survivor of the, of the flood is uh, even sadder uh, and even shows the writing prowess, I think, of, of Randy. 
Of Randy, yeah. You know, it's funny is we had uh, Harry Shearer on the podcast who lives in Louisiana, and and he said, you know, the the spirit, regardless of the tragedies that have beset Louisiana and New Orleans, there's there's a a love for life and the and the people that live there. It's like, yes, it's like they're they're downtrodden, they've been beaten, and they've been, you know. Like, you know, we know what happened with Katrina and, and the survivors of that, but they had to regroup. But it's like they regroup and they and they push forward and they still keep they keep a very positive, like, uh, you know, like frame of mind as best as they can. Big time, big time. I was actually staying in the lower ninth ward and there was like the black Indians that, uh, you know, are there during Mardi Gras. They were across the street from me and this volunteer group that I uh, was with, um, like we helped put together the the Black Indians, um, you know, which is like a tribute to the Native Americans that helped hide and heal uh, slaves during slavery. They were like dancing in the streets of Treme and it was, it was beautiful. Yeah. There's a real resiliency there in that city and that state. Yeah. What event changed the direction of your life? What event changed the direction of my life? Maybe when I started, I don't want to say started doing comedy. I'll just say when my grandfather died. I saw my grandfather die in front of me when I was 10. I think that it kept me to myself. Like I'm a little bit introverted. I can be extroverted, but I think that it kept me, it kept me observant and it kept me a little bit removed in a, in a, kind of good way I don't know I think that you know there's an overemphasis sometimes on trauma in people's lives and comedians and sometimes it feels kind of hogwash and you know boring but I think that it has some credence in terms of shaping obviously who we are I didn't I think I was more drawn to like just being acceptable with being uncomfortable and being okay making other people uncomfortable I think that it changed me and made me uh, sometimes a bit morbid, other times kind of like brooding because it was so devastating. Um, But yeah, I think that ultimately led me to going to therapy very early, seeing, seeing somebody die in front of me and just being like, okay, well, no matter how hard my life gets, I don't think anything will be as painful as that. And it helps me deal with some things to remember that and to keep that in mind. And not always to think that I have to entertain and not always to think that I have to shroud my feelings with a a punchline as so eloquently described by Chappelle on Saturday, it's really, really much, very much how I feel at times, you know, not to be like, I'm such a fucking, fucking bleeding heart, fucking artist, fuck, my life is just death and fuck, but, but yeah, kind of. (laughs) I I, I, I totally understand what what you're dealing with. Um. I mean, I lost my best friend. He died in a car accident with me, you know, and it's you could you could let it destroy you. You got to work through it. So the therapy, of course, is 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 so important. But it's like it's all perspective. It's just like if you, you should have you probably have a deeper appreciation for how precious life is. 
you know, and it, cause it's like, that's the shock right there to tell you like, oh shit, man, this isn't going to last forever. I need to enjoy this. And then also, like you said, the morbid part too, because that'll bring that shit in as well. Death just, that goes hand in hand, but yeah, man, thank you for telling me that. I appreciate it, dude. Um, all right. Every man, a king. So this was the campaign song co-written by and for Huey, the Kingfish Long, the Depression-era left-wing populist, Democratic governor of Louisiana from 28 to 32, and then Louisiana's Democratic senator from 1932 until his assassination in 1935. Uh, th- that's exactly what I thought when I heard this. So uh, play the intro. So even before I read the lyrics, I was like, this sounds like a 1920s political fight song. This is like, and I was right. I was 100% right about that, which is cool to have him put this on the record. You know, like, uh, like, how do you feel that this song blends with everything else on the album? Being that this, he didn't write this. Oh, I love it. I think, you know, it's very ragtime-esque. Um, I just thought that this song was... Um, it, like it did blend but it was so short that you miss it you know what i mean like you don't you don't even know that it's not part of the other song yeah that's what i'm saying so yeah so you know, it gives going, greater no no you get i mean it gives greater context to the next song because these three songs like you said are part of the same story yeah so this works as an intro to the next song which is actually kingfish and this is sung like a campaign speech by Huey Long to prospective voters uh, this one kind of reminds me of something we already have heard, though. Uh, so, Peter, play 123. Here come the kingfish, kingfish. Everybody say, yes, the kingfish. This kind of, to me, sounds like rednecks a little, but just without using the N-word. Do you know what I mean? It's Maybe it's not as, like, it's not it's not the same uh like power of the song where it's like upbeat and stuff but it's just the same cadence so that's exactly what i heard when i heard this yeah i mean it feels a little bit like a a dog whistle because you know it, they are not when they say friend of the working man you know they're only appealing to white people it's uh it's not as bad as uh stand back and stand by but it's still you know very uh divisive so this was influenced by another book randy read and in fact the reaction to the great mississippi flood helped kingfish get elected a year later uh also uh randy spent half of his childhood living in new orleans where long was almost mythical even though Long helped Franklin Delano Roosevelt get elected, he broke with him over the New Deal in favor of his own populist and socialist program called Share Our Wealth. Long became a champion of the rural poor against big business and helped create much of Louisiana's infrastructure during his time in office. Great song, man. All right, Naked Man. So this is a funny song. 
So these type of bizarre character studies were pretty standard Newman subject matter, but Randy claims that this is based on a true story. A friend of his told him about a naked man who snatched a lady's purse and ran, and when the police caught him, he blamed it on another naked man. His explanation for being naked was that he was having an affair with his friend's wife, and when that friend came home, he took off down the fire escape. He was still convicted. This song uh, kind of reminds me uh, a little bit of uh, some Obladi Obladashet. Uh, so here, let's show the comparison. Uh, Peter, play 53 seconds in on this song. Now uh, play some of the Beatles' Obladi Oblada. Thoughts on this? Mm. Yeah, the, the arrangement is similar. For us. It's that bass line that... I love that. That's the shit. That as soon as I heard that, yeah, I love it too. Uh, so did uh, so did Randy Newman. That's why I took it from the Beatles. Psych. All right, <laughs> but how do you feel about the song though, in general? I like the song. It's uh, you can. He's very good at like painting a picture line by line, and it just being like a narrative, like tying a narrative around something, and you being able to like see it. Like in the same way, you know, you could listen to Nas describe something. It's very poetical, and then he adds something seemingly like random, like shuffling uptown against the wind. She had started to cry, wiped a tear from her eye and looked back to see where she had been. You know, like you just, it's so much in the shadows of that where you're like, I have to read between the lines because is she crying because she's realizing that she's being followed or is she, uptown like, is she crying because there's wind you know what i mean like what is it? is it is she's looking back to see where she had been is it or is it wind from you know that's the double meaning and the shit that i'm just like tickles tickles your mind yeah 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 i just love the story behind this i think that i think it's just such a funny like subject matter to write a, a song about but it's fucking phenomenal which also there's a line which I guess I didn't realize before because he says it so casually that he says, uh, he said they found out about my sister and kicked me out the Navy. So the naked man is implying basically is off genius that he's has an incestuous relationship with his wife while he was in the Navy. And that's what led him to be discharged into a life of vagrancy and petty crimes he lives in the songs present day. So the the naked man, uh, sometimes when you get songs where it's seemingly absurd and you're just like, all right, what's going on here? You're just like, well, this crazy person is crazy for crazy sake. But I love the background. Like they found out about my sister. That's all you need to know. Like what? <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. so fucking crazy. <laughs> like It's so crazy. <laughs> Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. 
from Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. All right, wedding in Cherokee County. Uh, so it's kind of difficult to determine whether Randy is sympathetic or condescending in describing the impending wedding of a backwoods groom who has several misgivings about his troubled soon-to-be bride and his ability to perform his husbandly duties on their honeymoon night. Uh, so that's about his dick. Uh, this line I'm about to play had me fucking lolzing, uh, Peter. Papa was a midget. Her mama was a whore. Granddad was a newsboy till he was 84. Slam <laughs> old bastard he was. What an interesting wedding party, dude. Like, it's like, all right, let's seat the midget at table six. Uh, whore, put, put her over there with your cousin. You know what I mean? Rolling Stone critic Greel Marcus uh, disgustedly thought that Randy was goofing on certain Southerners solely to entertain the more elitist highbrow audiences. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? What do you think he was trying to do? Well, I mean, that's kind of a joke in of itself because it's just like, well, if you don't get it, maybe you can't read. No. Um, wait, who said that? A rock critic for Rolling Stone magazine. Oh, no. I don't think that was it. I mean, I think he's showing both sides. He's showing humanity and he's showing that people are actual like freaks, you know? Not not unlike the movie, the 1932 movie Freaks. It's like uh, I love the like the title characters are like at a table. There's this girl who seemingly like the whole movie is acted like she's holier than now. She's better than like whatever this group of like circus freaks. And then she has, you know, it's 1932, so they don't think about like. They're they're not thinking about like disabilities or teasing someone is wrong, but something something happens to her, and she becomes like a freak basically, and they go they're all like sitting down to eat all of these midgets and whores and all these people that Randy is describing. They go gobble gobble, we accept her, we accept her, one of us, one of us. And that's kind of what this shit reminds me of because, and and that's what I think the Rolling Stone critic maybe doesn't realize, like, we're all fucking freaks. That's, I think, kind of what Randy is trying to engender a little bit. And it's just that one little thing either could happen to you, whether physical, mental, spiritual, whatever, and you're right at the table with all them fucking freaks and they're all going, gobble, gobble, we accept her, we accept her, one of us, one of us. That's what it feels like all the time. And people that kind of run from being a fucking freak find themselves at the table with a bunch of freaks saying, gobble, gobble. Yeah, dude. Also, uh, I, I forgot to even mention this line. Uh Maybe line of the song next to the one that we played, she will laugh at my mighty sword. <laughs> I love that, dude. I fucking love that. All right, back on my feet again. So this is a story within a story. 
Uh, we have the re- unreliable, boasting, elitist narrator who is in some kind of asylum or hospital pleading with his doctor or therapist to arrange his release. And then it gets even zanier. Uh, then we have the story he tells of his dancer sister falling in love with a supposedly poor black man who turns out to be a wealthy white man in makeup who was just testing her to see if she really loved him for who he was. Uh, who gives a fuck about how crazy the story is? Because the chorus's little run uh, that they do is just phenomenal. Peter? Give me back all my feet again. I think what's so great about Randy, man, is just like, it's lyrics sometimes override the music that's playing in the background and that's overlaid over. And and it's just when you really study him as a musician, uh, and like you said, like as a as a not an accompanist, I'm trying to think of the words. I'm fucking them up. Uh, as a as a songwriter. It's just, he is phenomenal. And, and it's like, as I listen to this, this is one of the popular songs on the album. If this was, if there were singles, this could definitely be one of them. But it's just fantastic. It just solidifies how great musically Randy Newman really is, in my opinion. Thoughts on the song? Well, I like how weird it is. You know, it's kind of um, a little bit like, <laughs> it's actually a term. You can't say it, but it's called nigger fishing. <laughs> Basically, it's like common day nigger, or like old, I guess back then it was like first nigger fishing. So basically like today, like girls, there have been white girls who dress up and like, they're like, I'm Hispanic or I'm black. And it's just like, they have filler and all this shit. And then you fucking, they're like, Dating fucking black people or some dumb shit or even anybody just confusing them into thinking they're white. So this is like the OG kind of like you know testing people to be like, all right, who who are you really on the inside? So it's like, all right, you love me for me. If you thought I was black, I would have loved the different to break the fourth wall if she was just like, all right, so you wanted to test me and see if I love you. Yeah, I love the fucking black guy. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care how much money you have. I know it's wrong, but I would love you more if you stayed rich and just put the black face back on. Sounds wrong, but still, she still did fall in love technically with a black man. So with a black dude, yeah. Um, I, I love this song, man. Uh, I it's it's just this is like this is around the point in the record where I was just like, okay, I, I am now a full on fan of Randy Newman from this point on. And then to end the record with Roland, gonna be rolling, rolling, rolling. What if that's what he ended it with? He's like, oh, Limp Biscuit covered this? I think this is the only way to wrap this album up. And it's a return to the now aging good old boy, Johnny Cutler, escaping his troubles by drinking at home after work, blissfully unaware or unconcerned about anything but his simple life. The, I, I want to play the the utmost end of the record, uh, Peter.
Ooh, just that little orchestrated like sting at the end. It's so great. All right, thoughts on this? Oh, I love it. I think uh, I've smoked to this song. It feels weird. I'm like rolling while listening to Roland, but uh, no, I like it. It's um, I like the ain't gonna worry no more kind of thing. It's, yeah, it, it leaves you on like a like a positive like you know mantra just to like take with you from this. It's just like through all the bullshit we've just been through in the south and and you know and i know this is still from that same character who hasn't had it as hard as as like the blacks in in the south but it's just it, it's you know like i said one, one more time it's it's he's aloof he's aloof to what's going on and maybe while while there's all this you know racial strife going on for everybody else he's just like yeah man i'm just a good old boy right what you else know? can I do? Life's going to keep going on for me. I'm going to keep rolling. Um, he's lo- he's losing. He's kind of not understanding just how like anachronistic he is a little bit. Like just uh, out of space in time. Like he doesn't know how to track it because every day is the same. He's He's just telling you what he does day after day after day after day. And it, it's sad. And you realize how much sadder his existence is. And you don't, you almost want to be like, you know, you have to dick, take a double take, no matter who you're kind of talking to or like thinking about, like that you don't project your ideas of who they are on, that, that you have about them onto them. And I think, I think this is somebody who's dealt with the pressure of that and is also kind of acting a little bit like the person everyone thinks they are but but being okay that he is some of those things and isn't some of those things that people think about him. yeah i i just think i just think this is such a beautiful button on this record uh like i said that changed my complete opinion about who randy newman was and i'm i'm so fucking glad that this record came up right now because it was it was sandwiched between LCD Sound System, Sound of Silver, and fucking Kala by MIA, which are both like two bangers. And then you have like you have Randy Newman just fucking dropping fucking dimes on us. All right, you want to do a couple facts and get out of here? Oh yes, who me? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I want to do you're some fucking, facts. You're I want to do twirling your beard. With, I wanted with to three do my, watches on. I wanted to do my Randy Newman joke. Oh, hey, do a good. No, go please. Um. So. uh I don't know if you guys could tell, but I'm a big fan of Randy Newman. Yeah, actually, the other day, a friend of mine called me Randy Nubian, and I feel like it's the first time anyone's ever understood me. Uh, Randy Randy Newman is great. He's got a great satirical song called Sail Away. It's written from the perspective of a slave trader who's trying to convince prospective slaves to come to America. It's great. It goes up. In America, you get foodie. Don't have to run through the jungle and stuff up your feet. Be as happy as a monkey in a monkey tree. So climb aboard, little walk, sail away with me. Sail away. Sail away. We will cross the mighty ocean in the Charleston Bay. And then he wrote the Toy Story soundtrack. Who has that kind of range? 
Yeah, I love Randy Newman. May he rest in peace. <laughs> he's still alive. I just hope he's resting well. <laughs> Wait, you, but you met him though, right? I did. Yeah. Tell me about that. <laughs> I met him at a Hollywood Bowl. I have my ways. And I went, I was like, it was great. I saw Danny DeVito was back there. He was so sweet. Uh, and of course, they're friends, you know. And I saw him and I was like, Randy, can I have a picture, please? I could tell he was, you know, he'd done a long show. Um, and he was, he was very kind, took a picture. wasn't trying to bother him. Just wanted a sweet picture. He was very nice. He's on my Hinge profile. I have like a whole arc that is on my Hinge profile where basically in the first one, I'm just like, uh, we'll get along if you believe Randy Newman is better than Beyonce. Then the next one's like, Randy Newman is the best. Uh, I love Randy Newman. And then you scroll down some more. It's another Randy Newman thing. And then the last picture you see is a picture of me and Randy Newman. <laughs> Fire, dude. All right, let's do a couple. Let's do a couple facts and get you out of here. All oh, right. Yeah. In the Rolling Stone review for this album, writer Stephen Davis reflected on the song's quirky darkness by referring to Randy as deeply troubled. How do you feel about that? Do you think he is? Yeah. And um, no one, no one that isn't deeply troubled could make music as good as that. So, yeah. yeah. No, I completely agree. Completely agree. I, I, I talk about this all the time in the podcast. The best music, you know, comes out of England because of the weather. Seattle, great music because of the weather. You know, some of the greatest artists that are on this list have, have had drug problems and depression and anxiety and everything. And it's like even greatest comics. You know, we for the most part we 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 had we might have a solid foundation, but we had to build that over some real rocky shit. Randy recently released a song called "Stay Away" mm-hmm. to support people during the coronavirus pandemic. The song can be downloaded, and proceeds go to the Ellis Marsalis Center to to support undeserved children in New Orleans Ninth District. Hell yeah! Fucking fucking love you, Randy. Go go go. That song is Rand so funny. Dog. That song is hilarious. I gotta listen to it. You got me wanting to listen to way more. Like I want to listen to the the slave songs. I want to listen to the <laughs> World War II songs. I'm in. Yeah. I'm Rand. I'm all up in Randy Newman. Uh, watch people watch like me become this huge Randy Newman fan, and people are like, "Yo, why you why you biting Jordan, dude?" And I'm like, "Nah, man, we we, we connected your, over this. Get your own thing." Dude, all right, I got <laughs> <laughs> I got Rod Stewart. Rod Stewart. That's my <laughs> all right. Randy signed away the publishing rights for his first album at the time because he didn't know how popular his songs would become for other artists. It meant he didn't get any money from those covers. Now I'm gonna I'm going to flip it to the next fact because uh, Morty, my writer, told me this in the discussion prior to it, and I can't believe this. So Randy's debut album sold so poorly that his label, Warner Brothers Record, offered customers the options to trade it back for another record from their catalog. <laughs> so that's that's saying that you bought the record and if you hate it, you could they'll give you any other record. They're like, we'll just give you something just to feel like you got your money's worth. What do you, how do you feel about that? Have you heard his first record? 
Rand, it's just Randy Newman, isn't it? I don't, dude. I'm. This is the only official record by Randy Newman I really know. I've heard of the other ones, and I've dipped in a little bit. Like I know there's that song Baltimore. I know that because it keeps playing on my Spotify. Uh, I want to ask you this question: Which failure of yours taught you the most? I don't know. I think I've yet to really have it that's taught me the most. But maybe up to this point, probably getting going to so many high schools. You know, I went to five high schools, not through any fault of my own, all of them, but, you know, the tenacity to finish school that I had to have from just failing at going to so many schools and trying to have to, you know, learn how to make new friends and shit kind of carried on in my career. You know, I've had five writing jobs in three and a half years, I've had a writing job for every school that I went to. And I think being able to adapt has really taught, you know, that has taught me a lot, that adaptability. No, I dig that, dude. I dig that. Dude, this this was fantastic, brother. This was this was so great. Do you have anything you want to promote? What, are the sh- what show are you writing on right now? Uh, Marvelous Miss Maisel season four. And you got an Emmy? I just finished. Not yet. Shit's Creek took took them all. Nothing yet. I wrote I wrote on season three and four of Atlanta too. Um, so looking forward to just just working on my own stuff at some point. Nothing to really plug. Just say that uh, you know, listen to Randy Newman and Black Lives Matter. That's it. Fuck yeah, dude. Hey, Jordan. Um... I mean this, dude. I I do these all the time. I had a fucking blast getting to know you and and just chilling with you and talking to you uh, about Randy because this is why we do the podcast so we can find we can find the real fans, man. And and you definitely were. So uh, I I love this. Thank you so much, brother. Hell yeah! Thank you for having me, dog. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only Jordan Temple. Follow Jordan on Twitter at Joy Ploy. J-O-Y-P-L-O-Y and go to his website jordantemple.com Now, this week our new music pick is one of our very good friends here on the podcast the one and only Chris Sullivan Chris is one of the leads in This Is Us on NBC He also did our podcast number 416 Mule Variations by Tom Waits and as well as being a great dude and an incredible actor, he also makes music under the name Joseph the Spouse. His new album titled Six Feet From Under, which was co-written and produced by another guest of ours we just had on a few weeks ago, my good buddy Taylor Goldsmith of the band Dawes. The album comes out this week on November 19th, and you are listening to Messiah Moon, one of the many great tracks from this album. You can follow Chris's band on Instagram at Joseph the Spouse, and you can find links to the album on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you're in a band and were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on the 500, send us your song, 500podcast at gmail.com. Put the album and artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week, it's MIA week as we go deep into her 2007 sophomore album, Kala. You got homework to do. Listen to the album. Stay fleecy. Doogle doogle. This is only night song. 
I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, 
all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now on Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Next Chapter Podcasts.